Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. Let's just wade right into it. What is a father? This is one of the central themes in Freud's thought, according to Lacan. It's also an eternally unresolved question at the heart of analytic experience, Lacan says. I'll write in seminar four for you. For Lacan, as you probably know, fathers come in three types, symbolic, imaginary, and real. The imaginary father is the easiest one to knock out. Omnipotent, perverse, and psychotic subjects know this one all too well. What matters for Lacan in Seminar 17 is the relationship between the symbolic and the real father. This relationship really starts popping in chapters 7 and 8. Let's start with the real father. As you probably already know, the real father is not the biological father, but a figure of fatherhood in the position of the real. And the real here is not something external to the symbolic, but an internal effect of the symbolic. A malfunction a rattling around within the symbolic of some sort of an errancy. The real here is a constitutive lack or void or subtraction in the symbolic. What we're talking about here, in other words, when we talk about the real father, is the real of language, not bioanimality. See how Lacan puts this. Page 123, Seminar 17, gives us a nice read of this topic. An equivalence is therefore drawn in Freudian terms between the dead father and jouissance. It is he who keeps it in reserve, if I can put it like that. This is a topic that we're going to come back to, this connection between the dead father and jouissance. Not surprisingly, it's more complicated than Lacan lets on here. But check out how he works this here, at the level of the real father. In the manner in which it is stated, not at the level of the tragic with all its subtle suppleness, but in the statement of the myth of totem and taboo. Key text here. The Freudian myth draws an equivalence between the dead father and jouissance. This is what we can describe with the term structural operator. It's a good one here. Here the myth transcends itself through stating in the name of the real, for this is what Freud insists upon, that it actually happened, that it is the real, that the dead father is what guards jouissance, is where prohibition of jouissance started, where it stemmed from. Nice metaphors there, but notice the shift how Lacan now will turn to something a little more Lacanian and a little less Freudian. The fact that the dead father is jouissance presents itself to us as the sign of the impossible itself. There's your real for you. It's a sign of the impossible in the field of the symbolic. And in this way, we rediscover here the terms that are those I define as fixing the category of the real. Insofar as, in what I articulate, it is radically distinguished from the symbolic and the imaginary. The real is the impossible, Lacan says on 123. Not in the name of a simple obstacle we hit our heads up against, but in the name of the logical obstacle of what in the symbolic declares itself to be impossible. This is where the real emerges from. And that's a good way to start thinking about the real father. It's an emergence 
in the field of the symbolic, where impossibility is named, declared, signified. In effect, there beyond the Oedipus myth, we recognize an operator, a structural operator, which is called the real father. With, I would say, this property that in the name of a paradigm, it is also the promotion at the heart of the Freudian system of what the father of the real is, which places a term for the impossible at the center of Freud's utterance. A really nice riff on the real and a really nice clue as to what Lacan is doing here with the dead father as the real father as jouissance. Let me reiterate here. The real father is less an actual person than a function, an operation, a structural operator, typically mediated through someone else's speech, and typically the speech of one person in particular, whomever in your life played the part of the maternal figure, of that primary caregiver. The real father is in many ways just this structural operator, operationalized in someone else's discourse that you might imagine in such examples as, just wait until your father gets home. There's a classic one for you right there. There's your name of the father, if you like it. Jesus, don't forget about baby Jesus, doesn't like it when you talk like that. Oh, if only your Uncle Leonard could see you now. What you have here is less an understanding of the father as an actual entity in the world with a body and so forth, and more the father as something that comes up in someone else's discourse. This is important because it brings us to the symbolic father. The symbolic father is not a biological being either. And in fact, as you hear me calling the name of the father through the discourse of the maternal figure into existence, you see us verging from the real father into the symbolic father. We'll come back and strike that distinction again between the real father as a pronouncement of the impossible in the symbolic and the symbolic father as we're about to describe it. Again, not a biological being. Again, a function, a structural operator of sorts. The symbolic father is a subject position that anyone and no one and everyone in between can occupy for someone else. Mommies, daddies, gods, demons, laws, orders, books, ideas, these can all be symbolic fathers. Now, typically in Lacanian thought, you've got the symbolic father as the paternal function, and it serves two purposes, prohibition and positionality, subjugation and subjectification, the know of the father and the name of the father. One operation of prohibition and subjugation that produces a superego, another operation of positionality and subjectification that results in an ego ideal. Here you see the two basic functions of the unary trait. They instate a law for the subject. Together, these aspects or operations of the unary trait form the bedrock of human subjectivity at least of the neurotic type, where you see loss and minus phi, typically understood as castration, linked up with lack, obja, not as castration, but as causation. Causation for what? Causation for desire. Here you see lack as the cause of desire, and also, as you've heard me elaborate in other series, as the object of the drive. Prohibition and positionality produce the law. Loss and lack produce desire. 
And the central question for us is this relationship between law and desire. The key themes here in Seminar 17 are no other, desire and the law. But let's back up, per usual. Recall what Lacan has to say about this in the early 1960s, in that bread and butter Lacanian essay on the subversion of the subject. Check it out. In the English translation of Ecree, the key passage for us is on page 698. And what we're going to get at here is this notion of desire and the law as wrapped up with this paternal function, typically designated as the symbolic father in Lacan's thought. About midway down the page 698 of a in this famous essay, The Subversion of the Subject and the Dialectic of Desire. The image of the ideal father is a neurotic's fantasy. Beyond the mother demands real other whose desire, that is her desire, we wish she would tone down, stands out the image of a father who would turn a blind eye to desires. This marks more than it reveals the true function of the father, which is fundamentally to unite and not to oppose a desire to the law. So this first bit about mother as a real big other whose desire we wish would tone down. You can read about this earlier on the page in 698. You could also check out our series on Seminar 10, where this becomes a very clear point of discussion for anxiety. The desirous big barred other in your life who steals your lack whose lack trumps yours and leaves you lacking lack and all this business that you hear in Seminar 10 that we cover in our series on Seminar 10 is the source of anxiety. And the father is an antidote of sorts to that overweening, ever-enveloping, encompassing, overwhelming desirousness of the big barred other here embodied in the figure of the mother. Beyond her, there is the image of this person, figure, function that is the father who would turn a blind eye to desires. Now, it's more complicated than that, but that's part and parcel of what's happening here. To turn a blind eye to desire is to somehow couple it with the law. Check it out. The father of the neurotic wishes for the father the neurotic wishes for is clearly the dead father. This is plain to see, but he is also a father who would be the perfect master of his desire, which would be just as good as far as the subject is concerned. So, in contradistinction to the maternal figure and her overwhelming overweening desire that threatens to engulf the child in anxiety, you have this figure of the ideal father, at least as far as neurotics are concerned, who turns a blind eye, who that eye's got to be blind, to desire. And in as many ways is a master of their own, in addition to a protector of the child from that of the other figure, the maternal figure. In this sense, the best daddy is a dead one. This is what we're going to unfold. The symbolic father, in and as the paternal function of castration, which we've discussed so many times in this series, walls off the mother's desire and thus protects the child from its angsty effects, allowing the child sufficient breathing room, read, lack, to cultivate a desire of their own, a desire that would serve as a defense against anxiety. There's Lacan's theory of anxiety in a nutshell. The symbolic father would do this, Lacan tells us in the Subversion of the Subject essay, by perfectly mastering their own desire. 
a mastery comparable only to that of a corpse. Now, you've heard this from me before. When I talk about the paternal function, whomever performs it, whatever performs it, whatever comes to fill the place of that structural operator, as being someone, something, some operator that always keeps it 400. And you know what I mean by 400. I'm thinking of the Latin tradition of centuries. 400 equals four C's. Cool, calm, collected, and consistent. The paternal function that produces neurotics, staving off perversion and psychosis, is one in which castration and all the prohibitive and positional logics that go into that effect is always kept 400. Cool, calm, collected, and consistent. This is how you say no. Mommy doesn't have it and you can't be it for her. This is the paternal function. The no of the father, that is the foundation of the name of the father, does not have an exclamation point after it. It's no period, not no exclamation point. Jouissance, in this case, is just as dead as the daddy who says no. But let me be clear, the child's ensuing desire that can grow from this experience, it's not just a defense against anxiety. This desire is also a defense against going beyond a limit in jouissance, Lacan goes on to tell us in the subversion of the subject essay. Yeah, desire is a defense, he says on page 699 of the English translation, and he specifies it's a defense against going beyond a limit in jouissance. Such a key passage, and one we're going to talk about here in a moment. But let me ask you a question. What do we get in exchange for refusing to go beyond this limit in jouissance? Lacan doesn't answer this question in the early 1960s. In fact, it's precisely here, on the cusp of an answer, that he ends his masterful treatment of the topic, in the final lines of the subversion of the subject essay, which come just a page later, on page 700. Castration means that jouissance has to be refused in order to be attained on the inverse scale of the law of desire, now, usually, you read that shit, your mind is blown, and you're all set. You're all good to go at that point. Oh, my gosh, castration means that jouissance has to be refused as law, inverse scale, law of desire. You start tripping, right? Don't forget, this is not the final sentence in the essay. The final sentence is the one that tells you precisely what Lacan means by this limit that you refuse to go past. I won't go any further here, period. That's how this essay ends. So to understand the concluding flourish in this masterful piece, you can't just read the penultimate sentence. You got to read the final sentence too. Now, I think in Seminar 17, we've got enough resources to make sense of the penultimate sentence. What we're working here with now is this refusal to go any further. Up to this point in our series, Lectures on Lacan, we have read the inverse scale that you heard Lacan referring to here as that of the drive, as seen in the retroactive uppermost trajectory in his graph of desire, the one that extends from the matheme of the drive in the upper right-hand quadrant positioned in the field of castration, mind you, all the way across to its realization in the field of jouissance. And the pathway of the drive we've established is twofold at least. First, there's this pathway of sublimation. 
in which drives become means to desirous ends, ends which we never reach, of acquiring ever newer objects to substitute for primordially lost objects. Here is this idea you get from Freud that Lacan makes a good amount of, of in Seminar 16, that Freud talks about what you can do mit dem trieben, with them drives, with the drives. Check it out. What you do with the drives in this sublimatory approach is you swap out, substitute socially acceptable sublimated objects for primordial objects deemed lost. Now, it's more complicated than that. In fact, it's the designation of a substitute object that retroactively marks another primordial entity in the world as your lost object. We've been working at this, but for now, let's just keep it simple. Smokes for breasts. Cash for excrement. Likes for the gaze. And so on. We could just keep listing this out. All of these commodities that are consumed, that we buy to plug our holes, that's an important part here, are in service to surplus enjoyment. We've established this at this point. The first pathway of the drive, which is sublimatory, that traffics in objects, culminates in the experience of surplus enjoyment, as we've defined it. This is not the only pathway of the drive, you've heard me say. There's another desublimating pathway. It's a desublimation of this desirous commodity-driven enterprise you just heard me describe. And it shows us another way to live out the drive. It's a way of living in which the drives become means without end. Not in the sense of endlessness that you see in the desirous circle of surplus enjoyment, but instead a means whose end is nothing other than the operation of its means logic. An operation that occurs always at the level of openings, not objects, erogenous zones on the human body, not the things that we buy from Amazon in order to fill those holes, but the holes themselves. Mouth, anus, eyes, ears, hands, pores, we can go on and on. All of these openings on the human form, the openings that allow for a desublimated realization of the drive. You've heard Lacan talk till he's blue in the face about them, about their edge structure, if you like your math, about their rim-like structure, if you prefer your Kristeva-like emphasis on openings and limits. The important part for the drive here is that the openings that this second pathway of the drive focuses on instead of the objects they all have an opening and closing function. They can be opened and they can be closed. And all of them allow for, you've heard me say, not surplus enjoyment, but something I call real enjoyment. Now, this is not that conversation. We've had that conversation. But I'm queuing it up for you because this is typically how we understand what's happening in this final sentence in the subversion of the subject essay. This inverse scale at the top of the ladder that is the graph of desire leading from the mathem of the drive in the field of castration all the way to its realization in the field of jouissance. And what I'm telling you is that there are two paths and in that arrow, in that trajectory, one of which shows a sublimated drive that will only take you so far and ultimately leave you just desiring more, and another of which has a desublimated pathway that ultimately proves to be quite a bit more satisfying, I believe. The point here about this second pathway is that it's not about filling in the lacks of which we humans are comprised. Instead, as you heard me say in our series on 16, it's about learning how to be there with these lacks instead, alongside them, next to them, how to sit with lack. This is what the drive can ultimately teach us how to do. Not how to fill it with consumer artifacts, 
with commodities, but instead how to sit with the lacks of which we're comprised. The lacks that, according to Lacan, we are and nothing more. He's explicit about this in the late 1960s. Here, what you see in this second desublimated pathway for the drive, drives not as organons in the Aristotelian sense, but instead as occasions for mitdasein in the Heideggerian sense of being there with. The question is not what you do mit dem trieben, but how the drives allow you to actualize a kind of mitdasein, a different with structure, a mit here that allows you to sit with, to be there with, lack, without constantly trying to fill it in. That is the drive's ultimate horizon. But check this out. Lacan's works on jouissance in the first half of Seminar 17, and there are plenty, I would like to suggest that these can and should be read as an effort to understand the reciprocal constitution of a jouissance refused and a jouissance attained. In other words, I want to back off of the discussion of the drive for a minute and really just focus on what Lacan's doing here in Seminar 17 around jouissance, around a jouissance that has to be refused and a jouissance that can be attained on the inverse scale of the law of desire, as you hear him putting it here in the early 1960s in the subversion of the subject essay. And I want to refocus our attention on that passage with what we know from Seminar 17. There is a jouissance refused, and then on the inverse scale of the law of desire, there is a jouissance attained. What we have in Seminar 17 is jouissance refused as a renounced pathway to sexual enjoyment. And then we have a jouissance attained the surplus enjoyment readily available as long as you've got a wallet and a smartphone to every human subject in the field of jouissance that is opened up as a result. Here is your jouissance attained. So make no mistake, what Lacan is indexing and what he says he won't discuss any further at the end of the subversion of the subject essay are two different types of jouissance. Two types, however, that are reciprocally constitutive, as we've been discussing in this series. Castration is fundamental here. Remember, this starts from a discussion of the symbolic father. Castration as the two-part experience of prohibition pronounced and accepted marks the end of any and all pursuits of sexual jouissance. Here's that jouissance refused. And here's the thing. This mark of the end of any and all further pursuits of sexual jouissance is a mark that comes with us wherever we go thereafter. As the illusory, fantastical figure of a lost paradise that in fact we never had, to be regained in a no less illusory beyond of surplus jouissance. And again, think back to the lecture on surplus jouissance and what we're doing with the French notion of surplus here. This is why I'm telling you that sexual jouissance only exists in the field of surplus enjoyment and only ever as a never was turned into a no longer and a never shall turned into a not yet. That's the take-home message here. Surplus enjoyment is not separate from sexual enjoyment. In fact, what we can say is that sexual enjoyment only exists in and as a figure for surplus enjoyment. In the field of surplus enjoyment that our renunciation of sexual enjoyment's pursuit enables, we see sexual enjoyment existing in the following way. And I want to reiterate this. It's a never was that has become a no longer. Something that we experience as lost, even though we never had it to begin with. 
And it's a never shall in the sense that we'll never achieve sexual enjoyment. But in the field of surplus enjoyment, it's transfigured into a not yet. We don't have it now, but you never know when you might get it again. So this paradise lost, paradise gained is the basic fantasy of sexual enjoyment that props up surplus enjoyment. But it wasn't like we had paradise and then lost it. That ain't the truth. And it's not like, as a result, it can be repossessed further down the road. This is what we're working around with the notion of surplus enjoyment as containing within it this kind of fantasy figuration of sexual enjoyment, where the never was of a never shell is transformed into a no longer of a not yet. Now, this brings us to the last bit of that penultimate sentence in the subversion of the subject essay. This bit about the law of desire. The law of the land in the field of jouissance, with all of its pulled plants and cut stems of surplus enjoyment, think back to our recent lectures, and all of the resulting holes, divots, stumps, breaks, severings, that signify the loss, so-called loss, of sexual enjoyment that we never had. This is the law of desire. And the law of desire is precisely what the symbolic father, read the paternal function, qua castration, qua structural operator, institutes by uniting, not opposing, desire and the law. Recall that famous passage, very crucial passage from page 698 of a creed, where Lacan is very clear in saying that what happens at the level of the paternal function is that a union, not an opposition, is established between desire and the law. Let's be categorical, per usual. For Lacan, desire is the law. Now, that might sound like a crazy thing to say, and you might be like, oh, hell no, that's not true, McCormick. Hey, man, all I'm telling you is what Lacan says. And you can see this very clearly developed in Seminar 10. Seminar 10, page 199, and I'm going to put this out as a for instance, because Seminar 10 has several great passages where Lacan is just clear as day on the union identification, if, you, if you're just not comfortable with union, between law and desire. Here it is, page 199 of the English translation of Seminar 10. We covered this in our previous series on Seminar 10. You can check it out. Desire and the law are one and the same. Direct quote. Isn't this, of course, why transgression, however exhilarating it may be in the moment, never really yields satisfaction. We've been over this, but I think it's worth just recalling because transgression and its futility is also part of where Lacan begins Seminar 17. No law, no transgression. If there ain't a law in place, there's nothing for you to break, and as a result, no opportunity for you to get off if transgression is what trips your trigger, a la Seminar 7. In order to break the rules, in other words, you have to keep them ever top of mind. It's the law, not its violation, that structures and determines one's conduct when transgression is what gets you off. More important for us is another question. How does this union of law and desire, one and the same, in the field of jouissance, play out? That's the real question here. A clue comes to us again in the figure of the dead father on page 698 of a We can check it out one more time, just to make sure we are as clear as possible on this. I turn to page 698 once more, to point this out. The ideal father that we're talking about is a dead one, perfect master of his desire, whose true function 
is fundamentally to unite and not oppose desire to the law. Reiterating that on page 698, I really want you to have that in front of you, even though I know this is a seminar in which we're focusing on 17, I also want you to be very keen on its connection to what Lacan's doing at the start of the very same decade, here in the early 1960s. It's only 10 years later, but Lacan is sustaining these thoughts. He's developing them further, which is again why I read the subversion of the subject essay as that key piece in Lacan's thought, the one piece that I would keep if you had to get rid of the rest. I think it's the most important essay in a Cree, to say the least. The symbolic father doesn't just turn a blind eye to desire, though. It's not just, in other words, the fate of Oedipus and his namesake complex that we're talking about here. There's something more happening than just a blind father, blind to desire. The symbolic father is not just blind to desire, hear me now, but dead to desire. His mastery of desire, his own above all others, is just as masterful as that of a corpse, you've heard me say. And all the more so if he's been murdered. Dun, dun, dun. The dead father was murdered. There's the classic myth of Freudian psychoanalysis. You get two murdered daddies at the foundations of Freudian mythology. Lacan is keen on them both. Centerpiece here, though, is in fact murder. Hence, Lacan's return to the patricidal mythology that you see in Freud's thought in chapters 7 and 8 of Seminar 17. And two patricides in particular, each with a precise relation to jouissance. Check it out. First, you've got the classic Oedipal patricide. Oedipus murders his father and as a result gets to enjoy his mother. Now, it's a little more complicated than that, but not much according to Lacan. Check it out. It's at the bottom of page 113 in Seminar 17. The Oedipus complex, as it is recounted by Freud when he refers to Sophocles, is not at all treated like a myth. It's Sophocles' story minus, as you will see, its tragic component. According to Freud, what Sophocles' play reveals is that one sleeps with one's mother when one has killed one's father. Murder of the father and jouissance of the mother to be understood in the objective and the subjective senses. One enjoys the mother, and the mother enjoys. The fact that Oedipus absolutely does not know that he has killed his father, nor that he causes his mother to enjoy, nor that he enjoys her, changes nothing about the question, since, precisely, it is a fine example of the unconscious. So there's your first murder. Oedipus murders his father and, as a result, gets to enjoy his mother. But check out the second one from Totem and Taboo. You know where I'm going with this. The sons of the father of the primal horde, who was the sole and exclusive enjoyer of all women, murder him. And yet, check it out. The sons kill the father of the primal horde, but they do not go on to enjoy their mothers. Instead, they collectively renew their dead father's prohibition against such enjoyment. And that is the key part in all of this. This is what Lacan has his eyes on in these middle chapters of Seminar 17. The law of the father becomes the desire of the sons. His law becomes their desire. And what you see here is a kind of joyous marriage, to quote my homie Kenneth Burke, between the you must of the paternal function and the I will of the barred subject. Let's see how Lacan puts this. 
he continues pretty much on this topic. He's just talked about Oedipus, and then a couple paragraphs down, he immediately starts talking about this other patricide at the foundation of Freud's thought, that of the murder of the father of the primal horde. And the way this works, I won't have to read the whole thing for you, is that they kill him. The consequence is completely different from the myth of Oedipus. For having killed the old man, the old orang, two things happen. I place one of them in brackets, for it is incredible. They discover that they are brothers. Dun, dun, dun. The plot thickens. They kill daddy and discover they're all brothers. Now, he's doing something different with this. What he wants to do in the next couple of paragraphs is say that there's a principle of brotherhood here that should be understood. They murder the father of the primal horde and discover they are brothers, which they didn't know before that time. If they didn't know they were brothers before they did the kill, what did they know each other as before the kill? The energy that we put into all being brothers very clearly proves that we are not brothers. Even with our brother by birth, nothing proves that we are his brother. We can have a completely opposite batch of chromosomes. The pursuit of brotherhood without counting the rest, liberty and equality, remember, this guy's French, is something that's pretty extraordinary, and it is appropriate to realize what it covers. And then he hits us with this really important point. I only know one single origin of brotherhood. I mean human, always hummus, humus brotherhood, and that's segregation. It's just that in society, I don't want to call it human because I use the term sparingly. I am careful about what I say. I am not a man of the left, I observe. Everything that exists and brotherhood first and foremost is founded on segregation. No other brotherhood is even conceivable or has the slightest foundation, as I have just said, the slightest scientific foundation, unless it's because people are isolated together, isolated from the rest. Now, I don't think Lacan is being a racist here. I don't think he's talking about segregation in the sense you're probably thinking of it. What he's talking about is difference. What he's talking about is multiplicity. Before the oneification of brotherhood, there was a multiplicity of individuals isolated from each other in at least a fundamental sense. That's what he means by segregation here. The point is that Identification at the level of brotherhood is compensatory to division before the kill. Now, you just heard me quote my man Kenneth Burke, so I'm going to refer to one of his sources on this. It's called A Rhetoric of Motives. And if you don't know this book by Kenneth Burke, oh Lord, let me tell you, you are in for a treat. There are two fabulous readers of Freud that I know of. The first and foremost is Lacan. The second is Kenneth Burke. I have yet to encounter somebody as good at these two figures as reading Lacan. Kenneth Burke is great, and this is where he starts his book, A Rhetoric of Motives, that identification is compensatory to division. If we were not all foundationally, fundamentally, originally separate, there would be no traction for a politician to rise up and claim that we're united. Brotherhood would have no appeal to us if we were all already brothers. This is Lacan's point. Identification is compensatory to division. It follows from division. In other words, multiplicity comes first for Lacan. And all you readers of Badiou, you should be hearing this as well. Oneness for Lacan is a production. It's an effect. It's something you do. That's what Lacan means by universe, right? It's a turning into one, a universalization. What he's saying here is that it turns multiplicity into oneness. You don't start with oneness and then things fall apart. You start in a field in which nothing hangs together. In fact, that's the only thing that hangs together. And then you can create through rhetoric through the kill, a kind of oneification, a oneness that results from that. Now, that's not the primary stake. 
and what Lacan is doing here with the murder of the father of the primal horde, but it is relevant because this is a collective renewal of the dead father's prohibition against the enjoyment of the mother's. His law becomes their collective agreed-upon desire. Their social pact is a reaffirmation of his prohibitive law. His you must becomes a collective restatement at the level of their willingness to adhere to that you must. Lacan continues this discussion. And he continues it right on to page 115. Notice how he ends this one. Third paragraph, or second full paragraph on page 115. Be that as it may, they discover they are brothers. One wonders in the name of what segregation. This is to say that the myth is more like a fable. And then they all decide with one mind and no one will touch that no one will touch the little mummies because there is more than one of them to top it off they could exchange since the old father had them all these are the mothers he's talking about they could sleep with their brother's mother specifically since they are only brothers through their father so the point here lacan is making is that the brothers who engage in the collective mythical kill of the father of the primal horde, they could have done something different. They could have, instead of reaffirming at a collective, consensual way, the father's prohibition against sleeping with the mommies, they could have just done the math and been like, wait a minute, this one's not my mommy, so she and I can fuck, right? That's Lacan's point here. They could have done that, but that is not what they do. And that is a very revealing point. Lacan continues this discussion into the next chapter, into chapter 8, and elaborates it even further, linking the Father's death to that of God, and again with an eye toward the implications for law, order, and enjoyment. Check it out. It's on page 119, just a few pages later. I cue this up because whenever Lacan says Father, he's always thinking about God also. And here he, he makes a very clear connection between the two. The father's death, insofar as it echoes this statement with its Nietzschean gravity, this statement, this good news, good news, right, the gospel, that God is dead, does not seem to me to be of a kind to liberate us. Far from it. That's the key point. If God is dead, it don't mean we're free. Just the opposite the death of the father is far from incompatible with the motivation for religion, he goes on to say. And then at the bottom of the page, he hits us with it. The pinnacle of psychoanalysis is well and truly atheism, provided one gives this term another sense than that of God is dead, where all the indications are that Far from calling into question what is in play, namely the law, it is consolidated instead. The death of God does not call the law into question. Instead, the death of God allows for its consolidation. Now you see the connection here, right? The murder of the father of the primal horde does not result in lawlessness anarchy, sons and mothers fucking. No, that's not what it results in at all. In fact, it results in a consolidation of the Father's law to such an extent that it becomes the collective desire, the will of the people. A long time ago, Lacan continues at the bottom of page 119, I observed that for the sentence of old Father Karamazov, if God is dead, then everything is permitted. The conclusion that forces itself upon us in the text of our experience is that the response to God is dead is nothing is permitted anymore. If God is dead, nothing is permitted anymore. Now, Lacan is being playful here, but he is not fucking around. He is absolutely trying to make this point that there's something in the castrative logic 
that we don't often address. A mythical, fabled murder of the no-pronouncer that then ushers in an opportunity for the name to be reaffirmed. Now, this then logic is one that we're going to undermine because for Lacan it will be retroactive. It is the son's reaffirmation of the law of the father that has the retro-efficacy of marking that original prohibition. We'll come to it when we come to it. I'm just putting it on your horizon right now so you can know that we got a few more screws to turn in this one. At stake in all of this is a crucial part of castration, I'm trying to say, as it occurs in the know and the name of the father, one part subjugating and one part subjectifying. Between the know of the father and the name of the father is the myth of the murder of the father. A murder whose mythology allows sons and daughters alike to affirm in their own words, with their own signifiers, in terms of their own desire, the law of the father, and always at the level of a name. Hence, the two-part logic of S1 in Lacan's topology of the subject, first as unary trait, then as master signifier. We've emphasized this for a reason. Now you can see why. It's when the toddler can tell you their name and thus reaffirm the unary trait that they received from the big barred other qua S2 as their master signifier, a master signifier of their own. It's when they can do this that you know they're castrated. I want you to know, once more, that I ain't making this shit up. It is straight out of the book. Check it out. Page 121. What constitutes the essence of the master's position is to be castrated. Can't you see that here we find veiled to be sure, but indicated what is properly called succession and how it proceeds from castration also? Given that fantasy is always very curiously indicated by, but never properly attached to the fundamental myth of the father's murderer then, if castration is what strikes the son, is it not also what brings him to accede by the right path to what the function of the father is all about? This is indicated in all our experience. And does it not indicate that castration is transmitted from father to son? So again, Lacan is being a little bit playful here, but that word that catches our attention is accede, agree to, assent. It's that moment that seals the deal for the castrated subject. The son, having received the first strike of castration, then accedes to the right path. And here you see the paternal function finding fruition. You have to also pay attention to the logic here. You told, I told you that we were going to get after this a little bit. And I think it's important that we end on the complexity. The complexity here again between the no of the father and then you have the murder of the father, mythologized. And then you've got the name of the father as affirmed as a master signifier for the subject, you've heard us just say. The logic here is one of repetition. And repetition as retroaction. I can't emphasize this enough. The murder of the father is a mythical retroactive effect impossible through and through, of a second moment, an act of repetition in which this mythical past finds expression as lost, fantastical origin of one's castrated present. It is in 
and as the son's collective renunciation of jouissance, that the mythical father's prohibition against the same jouissance finds expression. The same logics that we've been working with around surplus enjoyment and its relation to sexual enjoyment as a fantastical paradise that we never had but nevertheless experience in the field of surplus enjoyment as lost is active here. Page 125 gives us a very nice read of this topic. Starts about eight or nine lines from the top of page 125. The father, the real father, remember where we started on the topic of the real father, is none other than the agent of castration. And this is what affirming the real father is as impossible, is destined to mask from us. So this assumption that there was a real daddy at the origin, a daddy to later be killed, is somehow an illusion. Check it out. What does, quote, agent mean? Initially, we slip into the fantasy that it is the father who is the castrator. It is very striking that none of the forms of the myth that Freud was attached to give any idea of this. It is not because at some initial hypothetical time the sons who were still animals did not have access to the troop of women that, so far as I know, they are castrated. Key point. Castration as the statement of a prohibition can in any case only be founded at a second moment that of the myth of the murder of the father of the horde. And as this actual myth states, it arises out of nothing other than a common accord. There's that emphasis on brotherhood, on consensus, on collectivity, on an ascent that is not just yours, but shared by all. His you must becomes their collective I will. Next comes the act. Equally, Lacan says, the term act needs to be picked up here. If, when discussing the psychoanalytic act, what I was able to say about the level of the act is to be taken seriously, that is, if it is true that there can only be an act in a context already replete with everything involving the signifier's effect, its entry into the world, there can be no act in the beginning at least none that could be described as murder. This myth can have no other sense here than the one I have reduced it to, a statement of the impossible. The myth of the murder of the father that allows the sons to freely choose his will as their own is a statement of the impossible. And when you hear Lacan say the impossible, you better damn well be thinking the real, which is why we started this discussion with the real father. There can be no act outside a field which is already so completely articulated that the law is located within it. There are no other acts than those that refer to the effects of this signifying articulation and include its entire problematic with, on the one hand, whatever loss, the very existence of anything at all that can be articulated as the subject entails, or rather is, and with, on the other hand, whatever pre-exists it as a legislative function. Yet another reason why the real is an effect in the symbolic. It is whatever the symbolic can't metabolize, which doesn't mean that it's somehow beyond or outside the symbolic. It's the rock that can't be broken down around which the entire symbolic is structured. Let there be no confusion here about what Lacan means by the real father or the theory of the real atop which this mythological agent lies in everlasting fabled repose. The real father is the dead father, is a grave in the field 
of jouissance that you can't help stumble across every now and again. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music.